May it please the court, I represent Mr. Finley. The arrest in this case of Mr. Finley was unlawful because it was without probable cause. Now, both the magistrate judge and the district court judge in this case reasoned that there was no probable cause for the initial attempt to arrest, but that Mr. Finley's flight provided independent probable cause to believe that he had committed the offense of fleeing by means other than a motor vehicle under the Minnesota statute. And on that basis, they upheld his arrest and then the eventual, which led to the seizure of the gun, the crime he's committed of. That analysis is incorrect because it misses that uh, the fleeing offense under the Minnesota statute is a specific intent crime. Well, slow down with me, because to what extent does the Flores-Lagunas case answer the very issue you say in black and white? I don't think that Flores-Lagunas answers. I, there are several responses here. The, the first is that I think Flores-Lagunas is factually distinguishable. So in Flores-Lagunas, the officers loudly announced from the very beginning that they were law enforcement. So the premise of my argument is that Finley did not know he was being accosted by law enforcement. There was never any announcement during that initial encounter of, we're cops, we're police, stick them up. In fact, what was said is, put your fucking hands up. And you can see from the reaction in the body cam footage, he's absolutely terrified. His body goes crazy. He throws his cell phone. You know, it's like that experience when someone surprises you and you get terrified and then magnify that by having a gun. That is utterly distinguishable from Flores Lagunas. And that matters for the point that I'm making. Because in Flores Lagunas, when the officers loudly announce that they're cops from the very outset, then Mr. Flores Lagunas knows that when he flees, he's fleeing police because they've told the him they're police. Wearing identified vests that had they vests. were, but again, they were, Your Honor. But if you look at the surveillance footage from the officer who opened the door, I believe Officer, um, well, I can't remember if it was Dobble or Stetson. I think Dobble, but anyway, uh, they had their guns drawn, so you can't see. Uh, uh, police. And there was testimony at the motions hearing that understandably, when all of a sudden you get surprised with a gun, you tend to focus on the gun, not the finer details of your accoster's garb. So in Flores Lagunas, they say right away, law enforcement. Here, there's nothing like that. And the guy, Mr. Finley, is completely scared out of his mind by having a gun pointed out. And it's not like he sees the police coming. You can see that he's looking down at his phone. All of a sudden, the door is open. Put your fucking hands up, and a gun is pointed at him and held with both hands. Right, One hand is used to open the door, but before the officer even finishes saying, put your fucking hands up, both of the hands are on the gun. So I think that the record uh, shows that he did not see the police on the chest. It was obscured by the officer holding the gun. Moreover, you focus on the gun. And so it's completely distinguishable from Flores Lagunas in a way that matters for the legal pith of my argument. Okay, it, you're, you're doing a good job, but I'd like you to address the, the black letter language, which I'm certain you've seen, that says, a defendant's response to an arrest or Terry stop, even an invalid one, may constitute, and another sentence, resistance by fleeing the scene provides independent grounds for arrest, and a third one, in this circuit, resistance to an illegal arrest, illegal arrest, we say several times, can furnish grounds for a second legitimate arrest. Those kind of three sentences, tell me how you, how you can work with those. Okay. Well, first off, I'd begin by noting 
that neither the magistrate judge nor the district court judge based their reasoning on resisting. They based their reasoning on fleeing. And so for all the reasons that I've said, I think that the courts missed that, um, that nuance. You know, because below, remember, both Mr. Finley and Mr. Somerville argued essentially what I've just said, that they didn't know they were cops. And the, the analytical move made by both the district court and the magistrate judge to get around that argument was to say, look, that doesn't matter. You're focusing on the perspective of the wrong person. You're focusing on the perspective of the person who's arrested, but probable cause is assessed on the basis of the perspective of the officer. And here the officers knew they were you know, in the lawful discharge of their duties. They knew they were cops, yada, yada. But what that missed, th that is true, that we look at it from the perspective of the officer. But because the fleeing offense is a specific intent crime, an essential element of that offense is not that just you voluntarily flee, but that you flee with the specific purpose of evading arrest, i.e. you have to know you are fleeing from law enforcement. So the elements of the offense under controlling... How, is that, how is that established or proven, what was in the mind of the defendant or the uh, arrestee? I mean, intent is always a, is a tricky thing for the law, right? We can never get inside people's heads. So intent is proved in the way that we always look at intent. You know, what, what's the behavior? What are the circumstances? Things like that. You know, we can never get inside people's heads. But here I think the circumstances show that Mr. Finley did not know they were law enforcement. They never said they were law enforcement. Uh, that re is it required that, that law enforcement identify verbally or, or orally? I don't know if I'd say it's... Simply being identifiable. Well, identifiable is not enough under the controlling law. Right? I don't know that the rule is that they must say they're police, but the rule is certainly not as long as there's police somewhere, it's okay, because that doesn't square with the elements of the offense of fleeing under Minnesota law. It's a specific intent crime, so an essential element is that the person has to intend to evade arrest, has to know their law enforcement they're fleeing from, and intend by the voluntary act of fleeing to evade that arrest. So, Go ahead, finish your thought. So it's not enough to simply have police somewhere. Right? I'm not saying that whether or not you say police is dispositive. It is certainly relevant. Certainly relevant. Obviously, if they had said police, then there would be no argument that when the person ran, they knew they were fleeing from police. Okay? Uh, but it, it certainly cannot be the rule that as long as there's police somewhere, like they have police on their sock, and so, like, you could identify him that that's enough. That's ridiculous. So it's not that they are identifiable. You have to look at the circumstances to try to get into the mind of the person who's fleeing. And here we have video evidence. You can see that Mr. Was Finley... Was there any additional communication once the flight began? Uh, nothing that indicated they were law enforcement. They're... they're, 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 they're uh, Later on, when he's on the ground, at that point, there are things, police, you're under arrest. But during the flight, no. And that was the, that was the basis for the magistrate judge and the district court getting around the argument of Mr. Finley and Mr. Somerville below. But they missed this complicating factor of felony fleeing being a specific intent crime. And here, I think, given the fact that he's obviously completely terrified, given the fact that it was established through testimony and common sense, that when you're completely surprised and terrified just because you're surprised, and then you have a gun pointed at you and someone says, put your fucking hands up, 
and they're holding it with two hands where the word police is written here, and they're holding it like this, I think it is uh, a far greater chance that they do not know that that person is a police officer. I mean, the decision to try to run is made instantaneously. And so I think that, again, intent is a complicated thing, but I think all of those factors lead to the conclusion that Mr. Finley did not know that he was being accosted by an officer. Uh, the magistrate judge, sorry. So what's, what's our review standard of the decision below looking at the totality of the circumstances to conclude that Finley was aware um, uh, sufficiently to, to, to be fleeing? Uh, what's our review standard of that determination? So uh, there's two review standards, factual findings, clear error, and then the ultimate legal question, de novo. Um, so I think that some of these things relate to um, factual findings and some of these things relate to the de novo standard. We do have the video evidence. It is completely irrefutably clear from the video evidence that he did not see the officers coming. He's looking down at his phone. One, one of the things um, that the government points out is like, hey, you know, he was approached by two officers. They both have police. He doesn't know he's approached by two officers. He's sitting there looking at his phone. The door is open. He's completely terrified. When he looks and sees the gun, you know, the terror is magnified, and then there's an instantaneous decision to run. And there's no communication at that point at all whatsoever about the person being police. Well, are we reviewing that as a clearly erroneous determination? If the court believes that the magistrate judge and the district judge found as a factual matter that Mr. Finley is, let me think about this, this is a complicated question because there's that double standard of review. I think whether he was aware they were police, I think fairly probably would be a factual question. How that relates to the law under specific intent under Wilson would be a legal analysis. So I think you have sort of both standards of review in play. I think that the evidence here shows that he meets either, or frankly, the more difficult standard uh, of clear error, because there's nothing establishing that he knew they were police. He saw one person, testimony established that you focused on the gun. That's just common sense. I mean, the gun is literally like, I don't know, five feet away from him, six feet away from him, and the command is to put your fucking hands up. Um, Was there I, additional instructions as well? Uh, there was nothing indicating they were police until after he was already on the... Weren't there additional instructions to get out and to uh, put your hands up? Or was anything like that communicated as well that might be consistent with police instructions as opposed to uh, carjacking demands? Well, no, I would disagree with that, Your Honor. I think carjackers want you to get out of the car, too. True, but... So, no, I don't think an instruction to get out of the car is inconsistent with carjackers, and I don't think to put your hands up is inconsistent well, with no, the car... I'm, just I'm trying to determine from you if there were additional... I don't think that there was anything... I don't think you could say that Mr. Finley... And I see I'm going way over my time here, Your Honors, and I do want to respect my co-counsel, uh, but... Uh, I don't think there's anything that establishes that Mr. Finley knew they were police until they're already on top of him and he's down on the pavement. I think at that point you could say, then they start saying things like you're under arrest, and that's consistent with police conduct. But in that initial encounter, no, I don't think so. All right. Well, counsel, doesn't that really go to whether 
whether these appellants are guilty of the of, of violation of this Minnesota statute and not to the issue of the uh, of their seizure? No, I don't think so, because the probable cause standard is whether a reasonably uh, prudent person would have grounds to believe. You said that there's specific intent, a specific intent mm -hmm. crime that's fleeing. Yep. And, and doesn't that come up at a trial if they're if they're brought to trial for fleeing for violating? The sure. Yeah, yeah. Of course, it, all the elements come up at a trial, but they also all come up in the probable cause analysis because it's probable cause to believe they committed an offense. What's the offense? The offense is felony fleeing. What are the essential elements of felony fleeing? One of them is specific intent. So the magistrate judge and the district court blithely got around the objections of Finley and Somerville by saying, we don't care about your perspective, we just care about the perspective of the officers. And that is legally wrong because it is misconstruing the statute. The controlling law of the statute says, no, no, we do care about the perspective of the person who runs because they have to run with the purpose to evade arrest. You can't run with the purpose of evading arrest without knowing that your pursuers are law enforcement. That doesn't make any logical sense. So yes, you're absolutely correct. Of course, specific intent, along with all the other elements, are proved in a trial or have to be established at a plea. But they're also equally relevant for the probable cause analysis because it's probable cause to believe that an offense has been committed. And we judge whether offenses have been committed by examining the elements. Thank you, Mr. Myers. Good morning, and may it please the court. My name is Ryan Pasiga, and I represent Appellant Somerville, as I was his trial counsel as well. Uh, Your Honors, I think that we had three issues in our appeal, and the first one has been, I think, just there's been a good dialogue about that identical issue for Somerville in that the independent flight doctrine and, and what should the court do about uh, the district court's ruling in that matter. Uh, I'd like to focus on our third issue, which I think is the most interesting issue, and that is whether or not when the district court sent out and received answers to written questionnaires, the court had reviewed all of them and decided not to share any of those questionnaires with counsel for the government or for the defense. We had raised that issue and preserved it for appeal, and it's my understanding that Judge Magnuson's chambers did indeed forward all of those written questionnaires over to this court to be a part of the record and for your review. To date, I have still not seen any one of the written questionnaires, the answers, that any of the prospective jurors answered. Counsel, is there any precedent on this? Your time's short. Not that I'm aware of, uh, but it is an abuse of okay, discretion. Okay, what's, what's your closest case? My, I don't have a closest case, well, honestly. Got, I've you, got the Sixth Amendment. Supreme Court cases, even. What, I what's, did. What, what's, what's your best authority? <laughs> the Sixth Amendment. Okay. It is. And, and the, this is a novel issue. This is a situation, can you imagine being in a trial and having the judge say, uh, there's a question posited to you as a prospective juror, but I'm going to bring you up to the bench and have you answer it, and the lawyers don't get to hear your answer. We didn't have one situation like that. We had 30 or however many prospective jurors there were, and a questionnaire that was about 20 questions long, including, but not limited to the very important question about race and likelihood of commission of a crime based on what we had as a black defendant in this case. Attitudes about police officers in a very charged atmosphere post-George Floyd here in Minneapolis. 
and questions about fundamental due process and the ability to enforce those tenets that we hold so dear in our American criminal courtrooms. Judge Magnuson was troubled. Was any concern raised during the trial, during Vordar, during any point in the trial, that any of the jurors that were seated were um, in some way inappropriately a part of the trial or participated in a manner detrimental to the interests of your client? Not that we know of. But what we don't know is a situation, for example, experience tells me that jurors are actually more honest in written questionnaires, especially about items that they don't want to talk about around their peers, like if they have a racial bias or the like. They tend to be more honest in a written questionnaire than raising their hand in front of 30 people. I've had that experience many times in trials. So we're looking for things like, are you saying something inconsistent where you're telling a judge, saying, you'll be fair to these black defendants, right? And the jurors go, yes, of course we will. They may have written something different. I had, did not have the ability to find out because we were deprived of the very answers to the questions that the court gave to the jury. You, you can't you, unring you, that did bell. Did you at any time ask them, what did you write on the jury questionnaire from the judge? I wasn't allowed to ask any questions during voir dire. We were not permitted okay, to brought wait, that wait, wait, motion. That's, that's dodging. Did you ask the judge to ask the jury that question? I asked the judge to, to give us copies and allow us but to see these But did you ask the things. judge to ask them if there's anything on there? Uh, uh, let's take the three big things, racial bias, law enforcement, and innocent until proven guilty. Okay? Sure. Take those three big ones. Did you ask the judge to ask them? On your questionnaire, did you write something that should be disclosed to counsel? Or anything like that? Or any question about them? No, but I don't know how that would help. Because jurors aren't going to know what well, should or shouldn't be. Well, how question can you write? But don't answer that. Okay. Don't, don't answer that. Uh, what was Now, I've, I've seen the transcript here, and I noticed the, the co-counsel joined in the objection. It's right. not in the brief on appeal, but uh, joins in the objection. But uh, So, so to, to just help me on that part of it, because that will be the issue here. You know, this is kind of an all-or-nothing deal. Sure. Kind of structural error, I bet, by the time we're done. So help me with what says this is such a big error, it should be an all as opposed to a nothing for you. But Because it, it goes to the heart of, defend, of a defendant's right to select a jury and, and their, their decision about whether jurors should be struck for cause or use a peremptory. It's a Sixth Amendment right, and it's guaranteed to the defendant. And the defendant has all the right in the world to strike anybody for almost any reason they want to. But we were deprived of the answers. And these weren't just regular answers. These were answers that were troubling Judge Magnuson. What you cannot, you cannot take that back. Once that information is let out, once the court made the decision to send out and receive answers from jurors and not share those with the defense counsel, that, that guides our ability to whether we have, we couldn't even articulate an, a, a strike for cause because we don't know what they said. That's where the error was made. I'd like to reserve one minute for a bottle. Counsel, did you, what efforts did you uh, take to obtain the questionnaires. We had asked the judge, and there's a record of that, that we wanted to see these questionnaires, and, and the judge overruled our objection to keeping them. I did ask him at that point, then please save all of these written questionnaires for the Eighth Circuit so we have them for appeal. Okay, and he said he would do that. He did. And make he, it part of the record, right? And he did, and it's my understanding right. so they sent them that, to you. After that, what request or effort uh, did you make in behalf of your client to obtain the questionnaires, like in, in the course of this appeal? Um, we had confirmed with Chambers that they sent them to the court 
for the record. We, Judge Magnuson denied our request to see them. I couldn't ask him to see him again. He, he told us, no, we could not see him. Okay, that so the best he was going to do is save them for you. So there's an appeal. It leaves the district court. It's, it's with this court. Were there any efforts made to obtain the questionnaire so that you could incorporate, uh, you know, what you, what you might learn there in your briefing or in your argument today? No, because I understand his, ru his, his ruling to be, you are not going to see these. I'm going to keep them in camera for the Eighth Circuit. Well, once they come to the Eighth Circuit, they're under our jurisdiction. Understood. Uh, one last question. Was there any effort post-trial for a remedy uh, to uh, examine the jurors or those that sat to determine if there had been any bias? No, Your Honor. I don't know how we could have done that without having these questionnaires to look at it with it in that lens. That's where I think the big error is. We, we couldn't even see them so we can articulate. I'm fighting with one hand behind my back trying to tell you there's problems here, but I haven't been able to articulate them because you have them and the district court have them, and to date I still have not seen them. All right. Counsel, we've used up your time. We've questioned both of you vigorously. Uh, I'll give each of you a minute in rebuttal uh, after uh, the government states. Thank you, Your Honors. You. May it please the Court. Good morning, Your Honors. David Genrick on behalf of the United States. Um, I'll address this morning the issues that were addressed by counsel in the court and rest on the briefs with respect to the issues that were not covered during oral argument, absent any counsel, questions. Counsel, would you speak up just a little bit or maybe sure. get the mic a little closer to you? Yep, and rest on the briefs with respect to any issues that were not argued by counsel or raised by the court unless the court has questions of the government. With one preliminary note, uh, Mr. Pasiga indicated that his argument with respect to the suppression issue was identical to Mr. Finley's argument. The government doesn't agree with, with that um, assertion with respect to how the issues are presented before the court. The government suggests that Mr. Finley uh, raised an issue with respect to whether the PC arrest uh, was supported as an intervening cause, and Mr. Somerville really attacked the Becker attenuation test. So while not agreeing the issues are identical, I do think they are adequately briefed with respect to Mr. Somerville. With respect to Mr. Finley's argument on um, whether a reasonable person could conclude that there was a fair probability that he fled police. I'd like first to talk about the legal standards and then about the factual findings of the district court here. And I'd suggest to the court that although um, the defendant uh, asserts that he's honoring the appropriate legal standard, that his emphasis on the subjective state of mind of Mr. Finley is misplaced here and is really not part of this court's inquiry. The standard is, as is reflected in the briefs in this court's uh, Flores Lagonas case and the other precedent, is whether from the perspective of the officers, an objectively reasonable officer, that is a reasonable person, could conclude that there was a fair probability that Mr. Finley fled from police. Counsel suggests that um, subjectively Mr. Finley was terrified um, by seeing a gun. Uh, one, the government suggests that's not the inquiry here. It, it, the subjective state of mind of Mr. Finley is not relevant to the determination of whether the officers had PC to arrest here, which is different, as Judge Shepard pointed out, from what we uh, litigate at trial with respect to what the defendant's state of mind was beyond a reasonable doubt. Here the issue is whether a reasonable officer and the perceptions of a reasonable officer support the notion that Mr. Finley was running to evade arrest. So 
at the threshold, the, the emphasis on whether Mr. Finley was actually in fear is misplaced. I'd also note, Your Honor, that... What, what, what's the reasoning for the officers to believe that they uh, have properly identified themselves or, uh, before consummating an arrest? Yes, uh, Your Honor, and, and uh, the district court's findings here were not clearly erroneous. The officers had a reasonable belief, objectively speaking from their perspective, what that Mr. Finley was evading. Uh, the officers were dressed in uh, uh, vests emblazoned with police on both front and back. They had their badges prominently displayed. They, uh, where, where, where were they displayed? On their vests, on the front of their vests. They approached the defendant, opened the door, and issued a command that, as the district court observed, was absolutely consistent with the way in which multiple officers conduct arrests in telling the defendant to put his hands up. And uh, the defendant, in response, looked at the officer, albeit briefly, but looked at the officer and then bolted out of the car. And an objectively reasonable officer, from the perception of the officer, who says, I'm in a police vest, clearly marked, I'm wearing my police badge, I'm approaching the defendant, multiple officers are approaching the defendant and shouting a command to put his hands up, which is the district court observed as a traditional command when law enforcement is executing arrest. Defendant looks at you in your vest with your badge, gun drawn, put your hands up, and then runs. Is there anything in the record about what the policy or practice of uh, the police department is in uh, a warrantless arrest like this in terms of the announcement police make, police make uh, when effecting that arrest? There is not anything about the MPD policy, Your Honor, but I think the court's questions with respect to whether that's, I believe it was your question, Chief Judge Smith, with respect to whether that's a required factor is important. The factor of whether the police announce themselves is, of course, relevant to the inquiry about whether a reasonable officer would believe that the defendant is acting in response to police action. But it's not the only factor, and there's no court uh, case of this court that suggests it is. The court looks at the totality of the circumstances with respect to the perception of the officer. And it's not an inquiry into the defendant's subjective state of mind, and I just want to suggest one reason why. The government could suggest that the reason that Mr. Finley ran was that there was a loaded 9-millimeter handgun uh, within six inches of his, of his left hand. And that's a reasonable inference, certainly, with respect to defendant's state of mind, but it's not one that this court is asked to make. The defendants didn't testify below about their subjective state of mind. The, def the government didn't suggest that the defendant's subjective state of mind was relevant because that's not the legal standard. And this court need not resolve what, as the counsel suggests, Finley was actually experiencing. The standard, for good reason, is from the standpoint of an objective officer, what did they perceive Mr. Finley's actions were? With respect to the Flores Lagones case, uh, Your Honors, um, Lagones Flores, I apologize. Uh, it, it is not distinguishable in material respects from this case. The court looked that in, in Lagones Flores, the defendant at the threshold asserted the reason I ran was because I didn't think these were police officers. Someone confronted me with a gun, notwithstanding the fact they announced themselves as police. And I, I ran because I, I fled my vehicle because I was afraid. And this court said, black letter, unequivocally, that that's not relevant to this court's inquiry. And then it reviewed the circumstances, the totality of the circumstances, reflecting what a reasonable officer would believe with respect to approaching in 
uh, in plain clothes, but with, with demarcations that they were police in Lagonas Flores as well, indicating that they were law enforcement and approaching the defendant to make the arrest. The nature of the commands in this case were different, but under the totality of the circumstances, there's no material difference in whether the perceptions of the police here were reasonable objectively with respect to defendant's, um, defendant's flight. Counsel, do you believe under our law the Minnesota statute uh, fleeing matters under uh, Flores Lagunas? Are the statutes... The, uh, Lagunas Flores was, or Flores Lagunas was a Minnesota case, um, and uh, it was fleeing via vehicle and then resisting arrest under yeah, 6 Yeah, but counsel, I'm looking at the two paragraphs of the court's opinion, well-written opinion by this court, uh, but I'm looking at those uh, uh, two paragraphs, and the first one acts like just fleeing's enough. And then the next paragraph says, and it uses the word independent, and that's where they go, they, we the court, go into fleeing a police officer under the Minnesota statute. And then the conclusion sounds like there are two bases. For yes. It. So I'm sure that's the way the government reads it. My interpretation of the court's okay. opinion written by the chief judge is that there are two bases. The first being fleeing. And then the next sentence after the discussion of the factual predicates for the fleeing, fleeing says, there is also probable cause here essentially to believe that there's resisting. And I think that framed as there is also probable cause to believe with respect to resisting, which is a separate state statute, would indicate that the court was, was um, finding two independent bases. It, Your Honor, in, in this case, uh, I think the, the basis with respect to fleeing on foot under 609.487, I think it is, is well-founded. But as the government notes in the footnote in its brief, as in uh, uh, Flores Lagona, 609.50, which is resisting, would be an independent basis to affirm here, just as it was uh, in this court's that case, in this a, that case involved a vehicle. Correct. Correct. So the, the, the vehicular flight statute is different than the flight on foot statute, uh, but the, the, uh, the PC determination in this case with respect to the flight on foot statute is supported in the same ways as the PC determination in car. The only difference really is once the officers perceive that the defendant was fleeing is the means of flight. But the inquiry as to whether the officer's probable cause supported the officer's perception that the defendant was fleeing by way of flight um, is, is materially indistinguishable in the government's view. Your Honors, unless there were additional questions with respect to uh, the District Court's well-reasoned findings um, and conclusions on uh, Finley's flight, the government would turn to the jury questionnaire issue. Proceed. With respect to the jury questionnaire issue, um, first I'd like to again discuss, discuss the law and then uh, discuss with the court uh, uh, the way in which the District Court proceeded here. So with respect to the law, um, it's the government's view that the standard for the court is whether the district court abused its discretion in conducting voir dire in a, where the, in a way that uh, impaired the defendant's right to a fair and impartial jury, and if it did, whether uh, there was substantial prejudice under the United States versus Bourgeois case cited in the government's footnote in its brief. What's the practice in district court in Minnesota as to the use of jury questionnaires? 
I would say that jury questionnaires are being used increasingly in the District of Minnesota, but the, the standard practice remains not to use questionnaires. There's not a local rule, right? There's not. Of any kind, right? No, okay. there is not. So to what use are they uh, employed? I mean, what what's done with them? Uh, any Is there any standard for uh, access to them? I mean, the use inform us what you know about the jury questionnaires. Both the use of questionnaires and how they're employed in the, pro in the course of voir dire is left to the discretion of the trial court, of the district court. The parties, as in this case, can make requests of the court, both to issue a questionnaire as to its content, whether to review it, but ultimately it's the district court that makes those decisions. There is no local rule, and as I think Judge Benton, you suggested, there's no precedent in the Eighth Circuit that requires a district court either to use or distribute jury questionnaires if they've been given You know, we do have a doctrine called unconstitutional abuse of discretion. You know, that's in our cases. It goes back to the 70s. And I think what that's talking about is structural error. I think that's what an unconstitutional, in, the, in this context at least, I won't uh, uh, say beyond this context. And some of our language in the old cases that that comes from, like the Bear Runner case in 74, uh, that's where a judge used only general questions. Are you familiar with that yes, case? Yes, I am, Your Honor. Okay, good. The judge used only general questions, and we reversed and granted a new trial because there were only general questions, and we said it's fundamental, any, any A and Y, any erosion of the right to extensively examine veneer men, it's the 70s, in order to secure a fair and impartial trial is prejudicial error, and I think they mean structural error, later called structural error. Okay, now, how do you get around the all-or-nothing um, part of this case? I, don't, I may have said it too elliptical to the other side, but I think you get it. I, I do, Your Honor. That if, that, is this the kind of thing, though, that is either a structural error and there's a complete new trial, or it's not at all? And doesn't that seem like extreme either way? It's not. In the government's view, it is not structural error. And I appreciate the inquiry, Your Honor, because I think it is an important question here if the court should find that the district court abuses discretion. I'll start with Bear Runner because the court started there. Mm -hmm. But I'd like then to, to talk more generally about structural error and in the context of, of Ordeer. So with respect to Bear Runner, Your Honor, I take the court's point with regard to the very broad language mm -hmm. regarding the, the prejudicial error. But the next sentence in that opinion says the right, this right, although firm and absolute, must always be considered in light of all the surrounding circumstances presented by the particular case. And then the court says, fundamental fairness in the present case requires a new trial. So I think there is some tension in the court's uh, language there between something that seems to suggest a blanket prejudicial approach, but the next sentence says, look, this is an important right, but we still view all the circumstances in context, and we think in this case that fundamental fairness was violated. Now, why? You know, why, the third, you, you, you read the third sentence. Thank you. Yes. It seems to go back to the first sentence a little bit. Yes. Yeah. And so, why in, in Bear Runner is, that, is, is there that, um, that sort of indication about the importance of the right? Well, and it is an important right. In, in Bear Runner is a race case. The, the court says that the issue was that the uh, district court did not ask appropriately probing questions about, quote, the American Indian race, close quote, that's the court's mm -hmm. words, uh, of the defendant. And race, the racial composition of a jury is the one area of ordeer 
where courts, circuit and the Supreme Court, have either explicitly adopted structural error or, in the case of the Supreme Court, all but explicitly indicated that if a jury is composed in a way that violates uh, Batson or other race-based norms with respect to voir dire, it is structural error. Well, counsel, as you know, no, you don't know. But uh, suppose I told you that there are many uh, jurors who displayed that they would have difficulty being fair and impartial, uh, in this case because defendants are African-American. And there are, I haven't counted them, about 10 or 12 uh, in the files. So how does that affect you? Well, it affects, I think, in two ways. First, with respect to the threshold question, did the district court abuse its discretion in the manner in which it conducted voir dire? The court's ultimate inquiry is whether the, the, uh, the, the actual composition of the jury was, was fair and impartial. And I think Chief Judge Smith asked whether there's any indication on this record that it was not, and I think the defense counsel acted, asked, answer candidly that there's not any indication it wasn't. Is the so, racial composition of the jury such as it was determined in the record? Um, I imagine that the biographical information available to the parties mm-hmm. with respect to the jurors is part of the record. I don't Proceed. know what the racial composition yeah, anything was. Anything in the district court is fine. Go ahead. And, and that what, that's not really the challenge here with respect to the racial composition of the jury. No, I understand. It's, it's about um, whether the process was fair and impartial. I think was, the court... Was there any uh, oral questioning of the jurors that were seated? Oh, Yes. Yeah, the court conducted standard voir dire, gave the defense and the prosecution an opportunity to approach and ask if there were any further inquiries that they would like to make. The Did you submit questions before trial? Yes. Okay. Yeah, and that's a matter of record. Those are in the district court docket. Well, generally, does this – let's talk about this case. Uh, in this case, did the judge take most of them you offered or not? Um, I think probably the defense suggestions were more – extensive than the prosecutions, but I would uh, represent to the court that the district court made full and fair inquiry over all the standard subjects of voir dire. Where they is, I, I think it's rarely true, frankly, Your Honor, especially in federal court versus state court, that federal voir dire covers all of the topics or in the requested depth the parties requested, as, as this court's aware. So, Your Honor, and I do want to provide the second part to the answer. The first part is, did this process... Uh, violate was an abuse of discretion, the process the district court actually used with respect to seating this jury. The second question is, if it was an abuse of discretion, um, would the content of, would the fact that the questioners weren't shared equal structural error? And, Your Honor, this is where I think your question about what the actual content of the questionnaires dovetails with the government's position, which is, if if this court finds that the district court should have provided the questionnaires, and the government, again, doesn't agree, it, it thinks that the process used, actually used, what pr- produced a fair and impartial jury. But if the court disagrees, the appropriate remedy here is to remand for a determination in the first instance by the district court, looking at the questionnaires of the jurors who were actually seated, because the focus is on the Sixth Amendment right to a fair and impartial jury as to whether what wasn't disclosed um, turned out to, to be substantially prejudicial under the standard announced in Bourgeois, which is a case after Bear Runner. And I do want to just quickly note with respect to structural versus prejudice, versus substantial prejudice, Your Honors, that in other jury instruction contexts, the Supreme Court and this Court have applied 
a substantial prejudice standard. So this, the Supreme Court decision, and I can put these in a 28-J, but the Supreme yes, Court decision do that. in right. Rivera versus Illinois, 556 U.S. 148, says if you, are, if you make a motion for cause and the district court denies it improperly and you have to use a peremptory and you come to the appellate court and you say, you know, I, I would have used my peremptory on someone else and the jury composition would have been different as a result. This is structural error. Supreme Court says no in Rivera. And this court said that before Rivera, actually. With respect to an uh, ineffective assistance claim that a defense counsel doesn't pursue a Batson challenge when he or she should have, this court says that's not structural error. And one example of that, of that is the Kehoe case, I'll 28-J it, uh, 712, Feb 3, 1256. Recently, in Aglaris Tovar, an unpublished decision of this court after briefing, 2022 Westlaw 3349124 L28J. This court approached whether the district court um, conducted voir dire in a way that was an abuse of discretion, and in one of the inquiries was, well, it's not it, whether it was an abuse of discretion or not doesn't matter because the juror that was the subject of the defense challenge wasn't ultimately seated, so there was no substantial prejudice because that juror wasn't seated as part of of the actual panel. So outside of the Batson context, what the government is suggesting is that no court has found structural error based on abuse of discretion regarding the manner in which a district court conducts for deer. The courts review whether the actual jury seated in the box uh, was fair and impartial in terms of substantial prejudice as a result of any error in which the district court made in conducting the inquiry. Counsel, I'm gathering from your argument that you haven't you haven't seen the questionnaires? I have not. The responses? <clears throat> Did the government ask um, for, the, for the questionnaires as part of the, during the appeal? I know the, I know the ruling of the district, district court judge, but during this appeal process, has the government requested the questionnaires? <clears throat> the government has not, and to the extent um, it would have been appropriate to do so, the government regrets not doing so, but... I must say I share Mr. Prasiga's, I guess, perhaps cautious approach that once the district court prevented us from seeing the questionnaires, um, I, we didn't ask for them. But I'd also note, Your Honor, that the government's position is the content of the questionnaires isn't relevant with respect under these circumstances to whether the district court abuses discretion because these, these, the protocol that Fordier actually conducted satisfied constitutional standards. So that did go enter the government's thinking as well. Counsel at court, you said we don't take a position on this issue. The government says Correct. we don't take a position on this issue, right? That, that we left it to the discretion of the district court, yeah, absolutely. You, your, your words, we don't take a position on this issue, right? Yes. Is that still your position? Well, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that the district court, I, I don't, I'm not no, suggesting. No, I'm asking yeah. something simple. The government's position at trial, we don't take a position on this issue. You know what I'm quoting. I, I do, yeah. yes. That's word for word. Yes. Okay, what's your, is that still the government's position? Well, no, on appeal we have a position that the district court did not abuse its discretion in not providing the questionnaires. But I think the nuance there, Your Honor, is had the district court provided the questionnaires, would the district, would the government have argued it was abuse of discretion? That's a, that's a speculative question. But our response to the district court, that it's in your discretion, covers both both circumstances, but of course, on appeal, we're going to defend the district court's decision to conduct standard for dear. Counsel, uh, just can I answer? Yes. 
Um, what's your uh, recollection or understanding? Did you try the case? I did not. Okay. Do you know whether uh, how the questionnaires came about? Were they at the uh, request of the parties, or is that this a standard practice of this particular judge? Your Honor, um, as to the second, I, I am I, I can I can confidently represent it's not a standard practice of Judge Magnuson. In fact, he rarely uses questionnaires. Uh, as to how it came about, my understanding is it was a subject to discussion the pretrial conference, and I'm actually not sure whether it was an, initiated by the district court or by the parties uh, with respect to the use of questionnaire. But Judge Magnuson does not make common use of jury questionnaires. Counsel, he does say the court has indicated it was going to use questionnaires in this case. Yes. That's how he opens the colloquy. Yes. And that was, that was a carryover from the pretrial conference. And in which, fact, all of you proposed questions for that. Well, the parties submitted proposed voir dire, but they were not submitted in the form of a questionnaire. Now, the district court may well have incorporated questions from the parties voir dire. Counsel, may I, may I ask another sure. question? I'm sorry, I thought those yes. were easy questions. He says at least both defense teams submitted proposed questionnaires. Okay. So you're saying the government didn't, but the defense did. Is that your point? What, what I'm suggesting is that, so I don't know, is the okay. precise That's answer. Good. Okay, good. Um, it's not a part of the, they weren't filed, Your Honor. No, no, I understand. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. Kendrick. Mr. Myers, your rebuttal. Are you, Judge, are you giving one minute each? Or? Yes. Okay. Two points. <clears throat> One, the officer versus Finley's perspective. I embrace and acknowledge that we judge it from the perspective of the officer, but it has to be with respect to the specific crime that's being committed. It's an essential element of that crime that the person fleeing knows they're fleeing police. So let's look at what the cops knew. They knew they didn't say cops. The two officers who accosted him, Stetson and Dowell, were wearing plain clothes with a vest on it. They knew they held the gun with two hands. They knew that holding the gun with two hands obscures the word police. This is all from the motions hearing from a testimony of an officer on pages 59 and 60. They knew the people with the gun pointed at them focused on the gun and not the finer points of the person's garb. They knew that if you don't yell police, it's possible that the person does not know there are costers or cops. And they knew that if you don't say police, it is less likely that the person accosted knows that their accoster is police. This is an officer's testimony about what they knew based on those circumstances. They knew all those things. It was in their power whether they decided to say police or take further steps to identify themselves. They need to know there's probable cause to believe that offense is committed. The final point I'd like to make on Flores Lagunas, Flores Lagunas did not involve as a factual matter resisting. It involved fleeing and reckless driving. That's on page uh, 560 of the opinion. It says we conclude that uh, there was probable cause based on the fleeing and the reckless uh, driving. Thank you. Mr. Pasiga. Thank you. The case law presented in this particular case, this case, this issue about these questionnaires is particular and unique, and it cries for reversal. We view all of the circumstances in context, the case law you were discussing. Look at this situation in context. It is truly unique. The content of these questionnaires is not relevant 
That's what the government said today on race issues. That simply cannot be in an American courtroom. Did, if you, somebody, have, did you have input into the composition of the jury questionnaire? Yeah, from what I I did try the case, and Mr. Calhoun Lopez was the government lawyer. Um, from what I recall, don't hold me to this, I think we exchanged versions of a, of a proposed questionnaire for the court, but ultimately um, Judge Magnuson may have incorporated some of our uh, proposals and was had his own. Was the questionnaire a function of the desire of the parties or, or imposed by the court? I think it was a desire of the parties at that point in time. There was also a COVID element going on at the time, so courts were using more questionnaires because of some of the COVID issues that jurors were facing at the time as well. But make no mistake, one of the big important things here was, are you going to look at African-American defendants differently in a criminal case, and are you going to believe or not believe law enforcement in a criminal case, especially with what we had going on here in Minneapolis at the time? You, you referred to these questionnaires and perhaps 10 jurors, prospective jurors, talking about whether they can be fair to an African-American that's on trial in a criminal case. I don't know how that's not relevant. I don't know how that's not structural error. If you were the lawyer for the defendant and you see a prospective juror saying, I might not be fair to a black person who's on trial, would you try to exercise a strike for cause? We were deprived of that opportunity. If you were denied that strike for cause, would you, would you use a peremptory on them? We were denied that opportunity. Would you want to know that? The court had that information. Once the court got that information back, it absolutely had a duty to share that with the lawyers. We were deprived of it. It was a unique error, but it is a grave error in this trial, and it calls for reversal and a remand for a new trial. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Pasiga. Court notes.